Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14, but we're going to pray first. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. Thank you that we could come to you and ask you to help us. Help us understand your Word. Help us revel in this truth, Lord. Cause us to be different than when we came in. We'd be more like you when we leave these doors today. Lord, thank you that we could lift our voice in worship today. Singing with great energy because of our love for our Savior, Lord. May that resound continually, not only today, but throughout the week. May those songs be on our hearts and that melody of that truth cause us to worship you. Father, we thank you for those who are gathered. There's many here today in both services, but Lord, we still know there's many who are not well. Lord, struggling from all kinds of things, Lord, but we do pray for them. And many are watching now as we start service. We're so grateful for them. Lord, we pray you would put your healing hand upon them. Lord, for those who are really struggling, a few in the hospital, Lord, we we beg you to touch their bodies, to heal them, and bring them back to us soon, Lord. Father, thank you that we can trust you for every breath. We can trust you for every day. We know we cannot add numbers to that. You've ordained those days, but we cannot take them away either. And so, Lord, we pray for the health of our body here, the church that meets at Riverbend. That you would help us get over these things. Lord, now as we turn to your word, Lord, may your inspired truth pierce our hearts and cause us to be greater worshipers of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the doctrine of illumination is a very important doctrine. It's really what we've been studying on last week and in this week, and then we see the effects of it or the lack of effects of it in people's life. The doctrine of illumination tells us that the Spirit of God indwells us at salvation. And there, the doctrine of illumination teaches us that the Word of God is, is spotlighted, the glory of Christ is spotlighted by the Spirit of God in our life. So illuminate, spirit, pneuma, light, wind, fire, we get that word, Greek word from that, that it burns brightly in our life. It illuminates truth. And that's what we're talking about. And it's the difference, now listen to this, between believers and unbelievers. Believers have the Spirit of God that illuminates the Word of God to us. Now, just listen to this. I want to just read a passage that's going to connect to this. And just think with me about the doctrine of illumination. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 and following, Paul gives us a very sharp command. He says, so then, do not be foolish. Well, when someone tells me not to be foolish, maybe we should listen, okay? So he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I love verses like that. I'll see that and I'll say, well, the Lord wants me to know his will. I should probably listen here, right? So don't be foolish. Understand what the, Lord is, the will of the Lord is. Listen to this statement. Do not be drunk with wine. Isn't that interesting? Now, this is a, per, a verse on not drinking. It's a verse on self-control. The, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. He goes on, and this is the statement we're after. But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. You know, well, Scott, aren't we filled with the Spirit at salvation? Correct. At, at Pentecost, at the birth of the church, when the new covenant took place and and fulfilled the old covenant. Jesus Christ did that. At salvation, every believer gains the Spirit of God, lives eternally within us forever. But here Paul uses some choice words to help us understand that he fills us, he grips us. There's times where the Spirit of God wants every room of your life. <laughs> oh, we have, a, we have a tendency sometimes to sequester him, to put him in the closet, let him out on Sunday, of course, because we have to be spiritual then. But the Bible says here, command, not, not a suggestion, all imperatives here, be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God 
fill you. Now, in verse 19, and again, I know you're just listening to this because I didn't ask you to open your Bibles here, but verse 19 says, here's the results. You'll begin to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That means there's a, a joyfulness that will come out of you. You'll be reminded by great psalms that you read of the glory of God, and you'll speak to one another with these psalms and hymns and, and this melody. The Bible says, making melody with your heart to the Lord. That'll flow from you. You'll know that the Spirit of God has, has, has now freedom in your life because you have joy. You have joy. Love, right? Love, joy, peace, patience. These are the fruit of the Spirit. He goes on to say this, always giving thanks to for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So the result of the illuminating work, the doctrine of illumination of the Spirit, is we are filled with joy, we rejoice over God's truth, and we give Him the credit. Is that what's happened in your life? Well, today, in this text, as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, my goal is to encourage you. Challenge, but yet encourage you. Who rules your heart? Does the Spirit of God have freedom to illuminate the Word of God? It was a struggle in Corinth, and we're going to learn from their mistakes. We're going to learn from their struggles. And I pray that we would walk with God in a way where we experience that type of joy. Well, let me look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and give you four thoughts this morning. Number one, the unbeliever rejects and places no eternal value in Christ and His Word. The unbeliever rejects and places no eternal value in Christ and His Word. I worded that phrase very very importantly and thoughtfully, because there are people, there are unsaved people who think the Bible's a good book and they, they find some encouragement from it. But the difference in the unbeliever and the believer is we find eternal value. We find eternal value in the truth of God's Word and in His work of His Spirit. So as we look at this passage, follow along, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Well, Paul is working very hard to give a clear contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man. This choice of word we translate in NASB, natural man, is a word that's used about five times in the Scripture. But the idea that he's using, uh, trying to explain here is a person whose soul is unspiritual. His soul is controlled by the world, his soul does not belong to God. That's the idea of this natural person that he's highlighting here. And Paul is contrasting the spiritual person with the unspiritual person. So this natural person belongs to the world's family, belongs to the one who works in sons of disobedient, but the spiritual person belongs to God's family. They're in two different families, two different worlds, really, they exist in. Now, one's an unbeliever, and they're in need of the grace of God desperate need. No one goes to heaven without the grace of God. No one sees the kingdom of God without receiving the grace of God through Christ alone, through faith alone, for his glory alone. The other is a believer. This one has received salvation that comes from Christ alone. He's received the grace alone that comes that grants him faith. The unbeliever lacks the spirit of God. Again, great contrast is going and he's left only with the spirit of the world. He's left with his depravity, trying to figure out how to operate in a fallen world without the Spirit of God. The believer, think about this. This is such a dramatic difference. God at salvation, now walk with me through this. God at salvation gifted you 
his own spirit. That's amazing. See, see, you see why our relationship with God is so personal. He said, not only am I going to save you and make you my children, make you for my forever family and prepare a place for you and, and welcome you as you come into my eternal kingdom, but I'm never going to lose you because I'm placing my own spirit in you who will always direct you to my truth. That's an amazing thing. What a dynamic difference between the natural man, the unsaved person, and those who know Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. And we who have the Spirit of God, He guides and directs you into truth. Turn to the book of Jude. It's only one chapter. It's towards the end of your Bibles, just before Revelation. And go to verse 17. Excuse me, verse, yes, verse 17. Bob does this all the way through. You find great distinctions. The apostles love to show the difference between a believer and unbeliever. And, and they're doing this so they help us live like believers, right? And so he is going to give a great distinction between the two here as Jude deals with the early church. Now, the early church in Jude's time as he's writing is being invaded by Gnosticism, invaded by false teachers. He's, he's helping the church to hold the line, to stay in their row and, and finish the work that God has given them, but yet be mindful of the wickedness that's out there. Verse 17, Jude says this, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Jude is referring you back to the inspiration of other apostles who are inspired by God to study them. Isn't that pretty cool? I think that's, that's a doctrine of inspiration. So he encourages you to remember these words. He's talking about Paul and some of his writings zealously. In fact, he says in verse 18, that they were saying to you, now look at this, in the last times there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Boy, that sounds just like 2 Timothy chapter 3. Very, very similar, right? So at the end times, here we go. The world's going to be pushing and running. They're going to be mocking those who follow Christ, and they're going to chase their own inner desires, which is depravity. These are the ones who will cause division. They're worldly-minded, and here's what I'm after. Look at this phrase at the end of 19. They're devoid of the Spirit. Now, that's a sharp, sharp word, isn't it? I really like, I know the Greek word, so I really like this English word that was translated here. They are empty. They have not the Spirit of God. It is, it is a word that says there's nothing in there when pertaining to the Spirit of God. They're devoid of it. But like uh, many of the apostles, he uses a great adversive conjunction here in verse 20. He says, but you. Oh, wait a minute. Those first three verses were speaking about the natural person, the unsaved. Now look what he does here. But you. <laughs> but you, Scott, listen up. You believer at Riverbend. Beloved. Oh, what a sweet term. I mean, God pressed his love upon us, loves us. You, beloved, building yourself up in, the, in your most holy faith. Now, I want to talk about that just for a phrase, for, for a minute here, that phrase. Your most holy phrase, your most holy faith. I like that phrase because that tells me that my faith has to come from God because it's most holy. Holy means absent of evil, absent of sin. So it's a gift from God. So I am to embrace this holy faith that God gave me. I'm going to embrace that. Do you embrace the faith that God gave you? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of this holy faith that God has given you? The result of our faith that God has given us is we can communicate with the Spirit. Look at the next phrase. 
praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, there are those in the Christian circle, the evangelical circle, that migrate to um, a non-sensationalist or charismatic view of things, and they've taken this verse and said there's a prayer language out there. That, that's such a crude um, interpretation of this passage. The passage is saying, because God granted you a faith absent of evil, <laughs> absent of sin, so that has to be from God, you have the right to pray in the Spirit, works with you, intercedes with you, accomplishes your prayers to the Father. Isn't that astounding? What a beautiful language that is, right? That Jesus hears us, that the Father hears us, and we pray in the Holy Spirit because he's in us. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not, you can pray all you want, but you don't have the Spirit to intercede for you. Oh, this is the result of a holy faith. And we do pray in the Spirit, don't we? We want, it's the Spirit of God, so He knows the things of God. So we pray in the Spirit. That means we align our prayers biblically. We align our prayers with the truth of God. That's what the Holy Spirit spotlights. He does not spotlight man's sufficiency. He spotlights the sufficiency of God, His Word, His Son. And so we pray with that strength and truth that we have. And notice it goes on to say, verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. That's what the Spirit does. He keeps you in your lane. He doesn't want you to wander away. And so when we have and realize this most holy faith, this, this sinless faith given to us, we, we are able to pray because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and strengthens us. It's unquenched, unhindered as we talk to God. We now stay in the love of God. We, we sense the love of God. We understand the love of God. We don't distort it. And we wait anxiously, anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We now wait anxiously. There's a good word for anxious, right? <laughs> Lord, I am so excited. I'm almost anxious, Lord, that you'll return one of these days. I hope he returns while we're in church. That would be really cool. I hope for all of us. That would be cool, wouldn't it? I anxiously await for the Lord. The early church cried out, Maranatha, come soon, Lord, come soon. That's what you, your desire, what this faith produces. This is what this most holy faith gives us. We're able to pray with the power of the Spirit of God, Spirit of God unquenched, unhindered, and it keeps us loving God, loving one another, and looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a contrast to the natural man. We'll go back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and notice in verse 14 that the man, natural man does not accept the things of, of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him, the verse says, and they cannot understand it. Now, just real quick breakdown of this verse. You'll notice that the subject or the object of this verse is the natural man, the natural person. That's the person without Jesus Christ, the person without the Spirit of God. But then there's several verbs here that are very key here. The first verb in the text says, does not accept. Notice that? He does not accept the things of the Spirit. It honestly can be translated, he cannot even receive them, right? The verb's active. In, in, in other words, he actively, listen to this, willfully rejects the things of God. I don't need Jesus Christ. I don't want him. He might be good for you. Certainly he seems to be a pretty good guy, but I don't want him. It's an active, present active tense. It's active. He, I think it's actually aorist tense. Eris active tense, and he does not desire those things. Now, there's another verb in here that's important. It says, cannot understand in the last phrase, right? These things are foolish to him, and he cannot understand. 
This verb's an interesting verb. It's the word we, dunamis, we get ability or power from. And so in other words, here it says he doesn't understand. He does not desire the, the ability or the power that comes from knowing God. He has no desire for those things. And you know what's interesting about that verb? It's passive. First verb is active. I actively reject it. The second one is it's passive. This is what's happened to me. This, is, this happened to me. Passive says things happening to you. And so here the Bible says, because of this person is born a sinner, remains a sinner till God changes the eternal state of that person, they, act, they passively have no desire for the things of God. They're stuck. They're, they're stuck in their sin. And that was us, brothers and sisters, before God saved us. And so the unspiritual person rejects the things of God because they don't understand them and they don't have a desire for them. They're incapable on their own to do this for themselves. They need God to do it. And look, this is the result. This results in him, this natural person, only accepting the things of the world. You either accept the things of the world or you accept the things of God. You can't have both. And there's a lot of people who try to do both, but they're in one camp or the other. Now, therefore... What happens to this natural man? Now think about this. Things like sin, like guilt, like forgiveness, like redemption, like salvation, like righteousness, like eternal life are really foolish to them. I was listening to an atheist this week. Give a, uh, there was a man debating him. And, and in, in their minds, there's just nothing out there. You live and you're this organism and you die and, and, and maybe evolution will continue on, but we'll probably never see it because it's such a long, slow thing. And this man was saying, that's not the hope we have. See, you're exercising faith, and he, he called his faith dead faith. And then he said, but I have a living faith that God did send his son, has a plan for me, and I will live eternally with him. But see, the, the, the natural man, the unsaved person, he doesn't get any of this. He doesn't understand forgiveness. He may understand guilt, but he doesn't know how to get forgiven for it. And because they're foolish to him, they don't mean anything. They're irrelevant. And they have no place in their life. Notice the word of praise. I, I mentioned this last week as I just touched on these verses at the end of last week's sermon. It, it really means to judge. It means to make a decisive decision through, through examination. And, and so if you had something nice that you wanted to praise, you could go to some of the guys, gals in this church that do appraisals, and they would say the value of it is this, right? So the unbeliever looks at the things of God, and he sees no value. She sees no value for their life in it. This is the state of depravity. And think about this. Without the work of the Spirit, the natural person, this person that's unsaved, there's no one to grant them these things until God moves in their life. And we carry that great message, and I'll get into that more as we go. Now, this doesn't mean an unbeliever is not intelligent. There's very intelligent men and women out there. It doesn't mean they can't think. It doesn't mean they're not educated. There are many great model citizens out there that aren't saved. Um, they function in society. But what it does mean is the unbeliever cannot understand the spiritual matters because they lack the Holy Spirit. And so we are, what the Bible says, aliens. That's what Peter says. He says we're aliens in a foreign world. So we should think different, we should speak different, we should sing different. Everything should be different about us because of the work of the Spirit of God in us. And Paul's doing a great job showing the difference. And you say, well, Scott, that's hard to believe. I know some really nice people. But just remind yourself, think biblically here. Ephesians chapter 2 says, and we were dead in our trespasses and sin. 
Now, he's talking to us to never forget where God brought us from, right? He goes on to say that the one, uh, the, son, the, one the prince of power of the air, the one who works in the sons of disobedience was working in our lives. But that's still happening today, not with you if you're saved, but with the world. Look, think about this. They're dead. <laughs> They're dead in their trespasses and sins. So spiritual people, um, uh, excuse me, um, unbelievers are spiritually dead and they're able to judge things. They're unable to judge things. And think about this. Sometimes Christians run to the world as Corinth was doing. They were looking to them for, for wisdom and they're trying to seek wisdom out of dead people. If there was a dead person here, what would you want to ask them? <laughs> More importantly, what would they tell you? Nothing. Nothing. And so we don't look to the world. And Paul's trying to show this church that they are looking to the wrong source. They need to turn to God. And people who have, have the Spirit of God with them turn to the things of the Lord. Let me give you just a bit of application as you think about this. An unsaved person has no Spirit of God. They're dead in their sins. They have nothing spiritually to offer you. Let me ask you a question. Why would you date an unbeliever? Mm, sorry, that hurts. I mean, think about that. If the Bible is correct here, and the Bible has clearly laid out the differences between those who are saved and those who are not, and you willfully engage in a relationship with somebody who is not saved, look what you're bringing into your life. Let me go a little farther, and this may hurt. What about business? You know, oh, wait a minute, Scott. Now, hold on. Wait a minute. Think about this. If I'm in business or in a relationship with somebody where, where I have to make decisions, decisions that affect my family, my life, my morals, my biblical morals and stuff, and one person is pulling in one direction, he's controlled by the one who works in the sons of disobedience, he's not pulling in the same direction with you, what happens? Well, you link two horses up that don't want to run together, they'll tear every harness and buggy you got up because they're pulling in different directions. And so we should ask ourselves, oh Lord, am I, am I in the world or am I of the world? See, that's the big difference. And, and look, we all have relationships with unsaved people, some in business, some in neighbors and so forth like that. What we have to ask is how intertwined are we, are, are we with dead people? With people who don't understand what we believe who don't understand the work of the Spirit that transforms our life and causes us to be worshipers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, unequally yoked flows into many things. And look, this does not mean that we are not to be in the world, evangelizing, sharing the gospel. We have the hope, and we'll see in this text, that it is our message that we plow in the field of God, our message that God allows us to give the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he uses to save them. But there's a difference between sharing the gospel with somebody and entwining, getting yoked up together. Does that make sense? Second thought. The spirit-filled believer finds infinite value in the mind of Christ. The spirit-filled believer finds infinite value in the mind of Christ. Look at verse 15 with me. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Well, this verse reminds us that we can take great delight in the, of being spirit-filled people, right? Uh, we, can, we can go directly to the Word of God, and the Spirit of God will illuminate, the doctrine of illumination, He'll illuminate us with the wisdom of God. James 1.5 says this, 
But if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I was thinking this week, and so studying this passage, I think my, probably my number one prayer, and maybe there should be, I don't know if this should be number one or not, but I, let me tell you what my number one, just to be honest with you, my number one prayer in the last 20 years is God, I need wisdom. I think I pray that as much as anything else. I need wisdom. I need wisdom in my, in my ministry, in my studies, in my family. I need your wisdom. In the Spirit of God, think about this, the Spirit of God searches the deep things of God without limitation. And he's able to examine us and make great judgment and give us the word of God, give us his truth so we can make great decisions. The spirit of God will help you have a biblical worldview. You'll start to look at the news different. You'll stop justifying things that you, you want to somehow get God to accept. And you'll actually say, God, because of this biblical worldview, because of the spirit you put in me, I don't think that's right. So I want to repent of that. I want to turn from those things. This is what God does with us. See, as Christians, you now have a firm grasp on knowledge of the mysteries of God. See, the Word of God is still a mystery to, to the world. They read the Old Testament, and they see blood, death, murders, rapes. They see all that stuff. They go, oh, the Bible's just full of all that. We go, yeah, it is. That's humans. That's what humans do when you leave them to themselves. They kill people, pillage people, commit heinous crimes of immorality. They need Jesus. But to him, it's a mystery. Well, what is this all about? Where's this book going? It's going to the cross. Everything's flowing towards the cross. The one who can save us from our sins. Well, I, don't, I, I just don't see it. <laughs> see, not us. We see the mysteries of Christ. We understand it. You know his plan of salvation that was laid down before the foundations of the world. Isn't that amazing? I think most of you love and embrace the doctrines of grace, Right? The doctrines of grace start with the understanding that Jesus knew us, the Father knew us from the foundations of the world. He called us. He, he, he called us to himself. We couldn't escape his, his grace. See, the, that's a mystery to the world, but to us, we understand those and appreciate. You know his sovereign control over your life and every breath and everything else. Oh, isn't that sweet when you're sick? Or maybe you're, you're dying. Maybe they've called hospice on you. And you remember, oh Lord, not one day can be added, not that one day taken away. I am in your will. You hold me in your hand and you have a perfect timing for my life and my death. See, that's a mystery to the world. The, the reason why the pandemic has been so full of fear mongering, the number one reason is man is afraid of death. They're afraid of it. And you know what? I would be too if I didn't have the spirit of God in me. So don't, don't throw stones at them too hard. They, they have no spirit of God. This is all they have, this world and, and existence and their children. That's all they have. They, this is what they're holding on to. This is what their identity is. But not the one who has the spirit of God. We embrace his sovereignty. We embrace it in death and in life. And we trust him in it. And it doesn't mean we're foolish, right? We make biblical wise decisions for our health and for our family and so forth. But we trust God. Our trust is in him. You're able to distinguish now truth from falsehood. Unfortunately, you sometimes watch the news, if you're like me, like, why am I watching this? But you're able to look at it now and go, uh, yeah, that's not right. Here's what the Bible says. Gina probably gets tired of it once in a while. I go, hun, the Bible says this. <laughs> she goes, yeah, I know. 
Because I love to examine the truth. I want, the truth now has given me ability to see false stuff. And I'm going, well, no, 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 that's not right. That's not right. Or when you're talking with somebody who's really passionate about something, you go, hey, yeah, that matches up with Scripture. Or it doesn't. This is the work of the Spirit of God in our life. 1 John 2, 21 says this, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. He's writing to believers. But because you do know it. <laughs> and because no lie is of the truth. Hey, I'm right. John says, I'm writing this letter to you because you know the truth. The truth will set you free. You know it. Oh, King David loved to write about what God had done for him. He had a very intimate relationship with God. It was beautiful to read David's writings. He says this in Psalm 36, 9. He says, for with you is the fountain of life. What a statement. I looked at this verse this week and I thought, yeah, that's right. The fountain of life is with God. Not with man and not with medical procedures. And we're grateful for wise people who have come up with things and, and drugs and things that help us get through sicknesses and so forth. But the fountain of life is not with man. And it's not out of Deleon Springs. <laughs> it's with God. It's with God. He is the one who provides the fountain of life. And then the verse goes on to say this is Psalms 36, 9, if you want to look this up later. In your light, we see light. Boy, I thought about that verse for a little bit. The world looks and they see darkness, right? Death, they're afraid of those things. They look at God and they see God as inhuman and, and mean and maybe this clockwinder up there of some sort. Oh, we see him as light. We've seen him shining his truth into our lives through the Spirit of God. See what great contrast we have. See, the spiritual person now distinguishes truth from error. We understand fact from fiction and genuineness from deception. Look, Paul's saying with the Spirit and the Word, you can humbly judge all things. You can make a correct assessment of all things. That's what it says in the verse, doesn't it? It says, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. Now, certainly this doesn't mean that we're an expert on everything, right? I, I'm not a very good mechanic. I have to have plenty come over and fix my car or something like that. I, I, I'm not that good. But you know what? I am smart enough is to find somebody who is. Because <laughs> the Word says, love one another and build relationships so we can serve one another and care for one another. So the family God provides that, right? So I may not be an expert in everything, but we do have a source to make accurate biblical decisions in the areas of our life and how they affect those around us. So the church should be made up of believers who have the indwelling work of the Spirit that's filling them so we live with one another in harmony so we become really the visible body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We become the hands and arms and nose and ears and feet of the Lord Jesus Christ functioning together in unity. That's the goal of a Spirit-filled church. Spirit-filled individuals. He sums this, last, this verse up here in verse 15 by saying, yet himself is, is appraised by no one. And, and undoubtedly, Paul is not saying that Christians should not be held accountable for their actions, right? We, we have enough verses that we deal with one another when sin is there. But, but more the understanding that a spiritual person cannot be judged about spiritual things by unbelievers. So when the whole thing started, we, we sat down for a whole seven weeks. It was a hard seven weeks. I was just thinking about it this morning. Remember a bunch of you made cutout pictures of yourself when I was preaching to the cameras? I, I still remember that. It was such a great day. I was so lonely in here preaching for those weeks. And, and a bunch of people would cut out so I could see actual people sitting here. I was preaching. What a beautiful Sunday that was. But we went long enough, and then we said, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. 
the world tells us not to meet and sing. Our Bible says, tells us not to forsake it and to sing to his glory. So we said, mm, okay, we've gone long enough. <laughs> Let's get back together and pray that God protects us. And if we get sick, we'll get sick for his glory because we know he owns our breath. See, see that's thinking biblically. That's what the Spirit does. That's how the Spirit leads us to think and to behave and to walk. Look at verse 16 with me. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. One of the many things you can learn from the Apostle Paul as you study his 13 epistles is that he always supports his instruction from God's Word. That's a good habit. When you're going to give somebody some instruction, you should probably have a verse or some context, biblical context behind that and said, well, here's where I think I, why I can give you some encouragement or give you some counsel on this because the Bible says this. This is what Paul does. So look what he does. He turns to Isaiah 40, verse 13. I said last week, I think he's in Isaiah a lot as he's writing this. And he, he, what he's doing is he considers God and his word and he goes to God's court of appeals, right? It's, it's got kind of a legal terminology here. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who will instruct him? And this quote is, is given to display that the Spirit does indeed have the complete knowledge of the Lord, meaning both God and Christ. The little phrase there says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? But at the end it says we have the mind of Christ. So, so why does he do that? One, he's quoting the Old Testament. But here he uses a capital Lord here to emphasize both God and Christ and their equality. So who has that? And then he answers it and says, we do. <laughs> Christian, young or old, middle-aged, married or single, you have the mind of Christ. And it's such an encouraging statement. The natural man doesn't have this. He doesn't receive these things. He doesn't know the depths of God, but not us. We have the truth. We are believers who have the spirit of God indwelling in us. Notice this phrase, we have the mind of Christ. It's a bold proclamation. And in fact, that little verb right there, we, a plural, have, he's talking about Paulo's hymn, the church that truly is saved there, is this present active tense there. That means right now, at this moment, we have the Spirit of God within us, and not only right now, but continually, he will not leave us nor forsake us. Don't quench him. That's what he's saying. And yet we'll do that from time to time, won't we? But truly, Paul is saying, look, the doctrine of illumination helps you understand that you have the mind thought through the word of God of who he believes, what he tells us, and what we need. And so the doctrine of illumination does mean that the indwelling spirit reveals the truth of Christ, reveals the word of God, and it means the spiritual person, the indwelled person, the saved person, does not have to agree with every viewpoint of the fallen world, right? You begin to say the differences of those things. But now you have the biblical Christ-centered worldview. Spirit does a lot of things. There's just a few things I would add to this. I would say the Spirit raises up pastors, teachers. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 and following there. He says he gifts us, God gifts us pastors and teachers. The Spirit uses pastors and teachers to teach you. You're here today sitting under my instructions. I'm in the pulpit today. You're sitting under my instructions. As I've studied the Word of God, the Spirit of God is taking the truth of God's Word and giving it to you. All week, I read lots of different commentaries. I sought counsel on these passages. I was studying away so I could learn from that, and the Spirit taught me so I could teach you. This is what he does. The Spirit of God aids you through diligent study. 
2 Timothy 2.15 says that you're to be a, a, one who studies diligently, rightly dividing the word of God. See, the problem with the Christian church today is what they're doing is here. They're not making a cut, lot cut straight, cutting it straight as the word means. They go, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I don't think we can do that in marriage anymore. So they go around it. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This whole gender issue is a problem. So I, we, can't, we can't take this man and woman that Jesus himself talks about in Matthew 19. So we've got to kind of cut around that. Hey, you want to see if the Spirit is illuminating truth in your life? Cut the Bible straight. Read it for what it says. Believe it. Believe it as God's truth. The Spirit of God, that's what he's doing. If you don't believe the Bible, that's your own spirit. That's not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is shining God's word into your life. Yes, there's secret things that belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says there's secret things that belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed belong to you. So everything in here, God wants us to know. He, he is much bigger than this. And some, I think for the rest of your life, eternity, you'll, you'll know him. But look, look, I told somebody this week, I said, when you get to the end of this and you figured all this out, then we'll go talk about direct revelation you're receiving from God. Because I've been studying this thing for 30, 38 years and I'm not at the end of it. I learned so much this week, it was amazing. So believe the Bible. That's what the Spirit of God wants you to do. Third point, worldly wisdom will dull the truth of God's word and leave you spiritually immature. Spiritually immature. To set this passage up, go to Hebrews chapter 5. Let me give you a great cross-reference here. Hebrews chapter 5. The writer of Hebrews has been showing the perfectness of Christ. He's greater in every area, right? He's the greater priest. He's the greater prophet. He's the greater king. He's greater in all areas. And, and then he uses examples to show his greatness, particularly from the Old Testament. Here he's been trying to teach them about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a type. He's a typology of Christ. He, his life was to point to the greater Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. But He's trying to teach them, but he knows that the Christians, these, Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians that Hebrews is written towards, and of course to us too, that they're struggling, right? And he says in verse 11, concerning him, that's Melchizedek in verse 10, we have much to say. We want to tell you more about this. But look what he goes on to say. And it's hard to explain. Since you have become dull of hearing. You don't want to hear. You're, you're not here for hearing. You're here to check the card because you went to church. He goes, look, you don't want to hear these things. And look why. Verse 12 tells us why. For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oral of course of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. See, he can't tell them the great glories of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14 because they're sucking on a spiritual bottle and not gnawing on a beautiful ribeye. Now you're hungry, aren't you? I mean, this is what the problem is. I, I want to tell you more about the glory of Christ. I want to tell you more how the, the Bible is showing him and everything's flowing to the cross. But you're stuck in all your problems because you won't confess them, you won't repent of them, and you're sucking on a spiritual bottle and I can't give you any more. And I think this is where the American church is in so many places. They don't want preaching. Your church preaches for an hour? Our guy, we throw things at him after 15 minutes. I mean, think about that. It's, it's just hard for people to get into the Bible, study it verse by verse, word by word. Look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word, to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. 
I read that verse this week and I thought, how sad. When righteousness is preached from the word of God, there's all kinds of people that they're not accustomed to it. Oh man, that, that church over there, they, they teach against sin. They actually do church discipline. See, those are words of righteousness. The Bible tells us to do these things. They're not easy. We don't like them in any way, but God wants his church pure. And so but we believe all of the Bible, every word of it, we actually believe it here and we teach it. And so the infant, not accustomed to that, look at verse 14, but solid foods for the mature, who because of practice, look at that, believe and live. Believe God's word and live. Believe God's word and live. That's what he's talking about, because of practice. Have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's a biblical worldview, isn't it? Believe and live. That's what God calls us to do. Now, as you turn back to our text, in chapter 3, we begin to see where Paul begins to challenge the Corinth church on their spirituality. And as we've seen, he has painstakingly described the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. And he has explained the ability of the Spirit to lead the Christian into the knowledge and understanding of a great God and Savior. But immediately in this chapter, Paul sternly addresses this Christian church in Corinth because they're proving themselves out to be infants and not having or, 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 or not taking the full advantage of the mind of Christ to grow, simply meaning they've quenched the Spirit. And there's, there's no better way to quench the Spirit than to chase worldly philosophies, worldly views. This is what he's been addressing, and they begin to be infants again. So the Corinthians do not uh, they're not building on the foundation of Christ, and he knows that they're actually making a little house of cards <laughs> that's just going to get blown over. So, verse 1, look at what he does here. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. Sounds very much like Hebrews, doesn't it? And Hebrews was written after this. But here, even, even with Paul, and you've got to love Apostle Paul, he's rebuking them. And look, this is the gentle one. <laughs> this book, gets, it gets... It gets difficult. It gets harsher. He's taking on, because of their emphasis, they have let sin now uh, take resonant within the church. There's, there's immorality. A man's living and sleeping with his mother-in-law. They're suing one another. They're misabusing the gifts. I mean, all kinds of things are happening. But this is how he tiptoes in, and he's gentle. Look what he does. He addresses them personally, and he addresses them as equals. He says, notice the term he used, brothers. And, of course, that would include sisters. He's talking about the brethren of the church. And he's conveying a message of unity. He wants unity within the church. But Paul is kind the way he stresses this, right? Listen, brothers. <laughs> and notice that he uses a past tense. He says, I could not speak to you. I could not speak to you. There's past tense as spiritual people. Now, what he's doing is he's referring back to when he came. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, and when I came to you. So when he came, they were what? They were a bunch of pagans. But there was no church there before Paul got there. He came from, remember, he came from Athens. He cut across the little short kind of water bridge there. He got, came across there. He came into Corinth, and he preached the gospel, and God started saving people. So when he came to them, they were pagans. They had never heard the word of God. But during his visit, many received Christ. But now Paul faces a church that's quenching the spirit. They're, they're acting and conducting their lives carnally, fleshly, and he's addressing them as infants in Christ. And, and it's it is a difficult rebuke because he truly desires them to be running by now, to be, to be gnawing on the spiritual meat of God's word. And, and so it is a difficult rebuke. And look, people fall into infancy all the time. 
And, and if we love them enough, we're going, hey, brother, why are you nursing on that bottle? It's time to get over these things. It's time to run again, confess sin, repent, and let's go. Time is short. Life is short. Jesus is coming back. See, this is what Paul's after. But this group's suffering great consequences. There's total disunity. There's factions in the church. They're suing each other. They're letting immorality be right in the center of them and doing nothing about it. This is where the lack of letting the Spirit reign in your life, this is what will become. Someone um, cannot be a Christian who's devoid of the Spirit, of course, but I think a Christian can act like a non-Christian at times. I think a Christian can think and act unbiblically. I think that happens often. And, and, and so he loved them enough to say, look, brothers, you're, you're acting like babies. <laughs> Nobody likes to be called a baby when you're an adult. But that's what he's speaking about. They are not letting the Spirit of God accomplish what the doctrine of illumination was designed to do. Look at verse 2 with me. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able. All past tense, he's all talking about when I was there. I gave you milk when I came. I gave you the simplicity of the Lord Jesus Christ, your, your sin, your need of a Savior. I gave, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. I didn't start talking about the doctrines of grace and the depths of God's wisdom and so yet. I gave you the gospel. But, the, but to know this was in the past and then he's talking about the future, he says this, indeed, even now you're not able. So because you're acting like when I first got here. Why are you going backwards? This is where the term the backslidden and some of that stuff comes from some of these passages here. And so he's, he's admonishing them with a father-like disposition that loves his children, that they need, to be, have, they need more spiritual nutrition. And by the time the Corinth church, these Corinth Christians, had come, they, they, didn't, they couldn't take a piece of meat of, of deep truth. And so they had begun to lean back on the worldly wisdom and and we see this happen, and, and again, it happens in our own lives at times. There's times where we go through difficulties and we stop thinking biblically. We're hurt. Something didn't work out the way we thought, and we, we begin not to, to walk with God in a sense that's uh, honoring to Him. We begin to quench the Spirit, and then we start to think unbiblically. We start to think unbiblically about other people, about events, the things that go on. God says, don't act like an infant. Repent, turn from your sin. Notice verse Three, he says, you're still fleshly. For you're still fleshly. <laughs> See, Paul's not sugarcoating. He's kind, he's fatherly, but he's not sugarcoating. He's clearly telling them that you're living unspiritually in your conduct. And notice what he goes on to say, and he points to, the, to what's, what he sees. For since there is jealousy and strife among you. See, their flesh and their carnal living is being exposed by the apostle, being exposed by the word of God, Right? And obviously the Corinthians were fighting among themselves. They were devoid of love for one another. And they're behaving like unspiritual people. And notice in the verse he says this in verse 3. He says, are you not fleshly? He's questioning them. Are you not walking like mere men? It's a rhetorical question he's exposing. Look, you have not let the Spirit fill your life. You sequestered him. And they're acting like unspiritual people who desire the ways of the world, not the word of God. But again, as believers, we have the Spirit. Confess your sins. Turn from it. Let the Spirit of God work in your life. Listen, brothers and sisters, it's the Spirit that distinguishes us from unbelievers. The Spirit does not spotlight worldly philosophies in your life. 
If that's what's in your life right now, and you're thinking worldly, you're thinking immorally, you're you're running to sin often in your mind, it tells you you've quenched the Spirit somewhere. And what will happen is when you hear biblical instruction, you'll pull away from it, and you'll snuggle up with your little bottle because you won't want truth. Oh, God wants you to grow. He wants you to understand the doctrine of illumination that Jesus wants to be bright in your life through his word. Look at verse 4 with me. For when, I, for, when I, um, excuse me, for when one says, I am a Paul, or another, I am apostle, are we not mere men? Well, he's circling back, right? Chapter 1, verse 12, that he says, here's all the factions. I'm of a Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm apostle, you know, uh, 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 Apollos. He's circling back because he's showing that this is what unspiritual, fleshly living does. It puts you into factions. And this is where division in churches come. And when there's a division in the church or division between people, it shows they're unspiritual. They don't want to solve those things. They don't want to go and deal with sin. Instead, they pull back and they find people who agree with their view and then they battle against somebody else. That's exactly what's happened in Corinth. When you eat meat, you solve sin by confessing it and seeking reconciliation. Now, Paul's comparing the Corinth Christians with their worldly colleagues, right? And he, he's saying, look, you're, you shouldn't be a part of them. You have a spirit of God. And, and the whole Bible, look, the whole Bible puts people into two categories, believers and unbelievers. But somewhere along the line, um, I'm not sure when this took place, but I know growing up, I started to hear it a lot. Somebody came up with the term carnal Christians. And they would say, oh, he's just a carnal Christian or she's just a carnal Christian, as though there's a third category. <laughs> oh, there's believers who submit their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit indwells them and so forth. And then there's unbelievers, but there's this group in between that, uh, you know, they're on the fence on everything. They're carnal. Let me be clear, there's no third category. (laughs) Paul sees these believers as either two things, either temporarily, temporarily quenching the Spirit of God and acting like spiritual infants, or he sees them as unbelievers. They're one of the two. Here's what I'm trying to say. You don't stay in carnality forever. I will openly admit to you that there's times even your pastors will think carnally. We'll go through struggles. We get hurt. We fail to go to the Lord on things from time to time. But we won't stay there, and I hope you don't either. And and so, yes, you can think carnally. You can think worldly sometimes. You can get caught up in the pandemic and what it's doing to your business or, or, or be frustrated with politics and that could drag you away and you can live in that carnality for a little while. But pretty soon, if you're a believer, you go, no, that's not right. That's not right. I need to trust the Lord. He's allowed this to happen. See, see the difference? And so he's showing that that's not true. John says it this way. He says, they went out from us because they were never of us. So your carnality, you'll either repent of it and begin to grow in maturity, or you'll say, ah, yeah, I don't think I'm really a part of this group. It'll typically take you away. I've said a million times, you've heard me say it, your moral upbringing will only take you so far that without the Spirit of God, you'll abandon it eventually, and your flesh will take you where it wants. I don't care. You can be raised in the greatest church. You can, be, you can memorize scriptures. You can go to Sunday school, BFGs, um, high school group, crossroads, um, come to church every Sunday and check those boxes, but if you're running on your own morality, it will run out. It is the Spirit of God that brings us back to truth, that brings us to repentance each 
in every time. Last thought quickly here. God's servants are working in God's field. Look, I'm a pastor first and foremost as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before anything else, I'm a pastor of the, and a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ sends his ministers to his servants. We are his servants sent to his servants. And so I think this is what Paul is saying is exactly what Paul and Apollos were. They were sent to Corinth. They were there to labor with the Spirit's help and wait for God's harvest. Look what he says in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe? Even the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now, what, notice what Paul says. What is Apollos and what is Paul? Now, <laughs> Paul's not worried about, get this, he's not worried about who. So he doesn't say who is Apollos and who is Paul. He says what. He's concerned with the what, meaning what did God send us to do? He wants them to know that. He sent us to focus on the work of the ministry, to preach Christ, to preach the gospel, and grow you into spiritually mature people. That's what God sent us to do. And yet you're trying to align in factious ways with one of us? We're sent to show you Christ. We're sent to bring you to him. We're the under-shepherds that bring you up the hill to the greener pastures of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you think you're following us? Oh, that's not why we're here. This week we started a class on, uh, on biblical leadership, pastoral leadership within the church with the seminary guys and had a great time yesterday morning. One of the verses we examined was 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says this is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, a word that we tie to elders, pastors, it's all used in conjunction. And then it says this, it is a fine work he desires to do. So he said, listen, men, if you're just desiring this position, boy, I want to be in the pulpit or I want this or that. That's not what this verse is about. That's not what eldership is about. Eldership is designing the work of the ministry. <laughs> oh, that's, well, we could go for hours telling you about the work of the ministry. It's hard. It's laborsome. And that's what Paul's saying. We came and we labored among you. That's what God sent us to do, to labor among you. And you're trying to make us your desire? We labored for you to love Jesus Christ. So the church is sometimes more concerned with factions and who's, who's the, the main guy. And, oh, that's dangerous, brothers and sisters. Riverbend Church functions as a group of elders that are under galley rowers, that are under shepherds to Jesus Christ, who are working in God's field with the Riverbend Community Church as a, a men that are united together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please don't follow me or any other pastor. Because you know where we're taking you? Right to Christ. That's what God does. Notice he says this in the verse. Servants, plural, whom you believe, even as the Lord gave us opportunity to teach. So Paul, he's speaking on the behalf of Apollos here. He's making a clear distinction. God called us to be servants, to lead you. So don't idolize us. <laughs> Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's displaying this biblical shepherding as he reminds the Corinth Christians that he was sent to lead them to truth, to bring them into the, bond, the perfect unity of love, into bond of fellowship, into the bond of the Lord Jesus Christ, not into some Pauline uh, religion. Look at verse 6 with me. I plant Apollos waters. God was causing the growth. 
Well, look, everybody in the first century understood agriculture. You, it was just all around you. You know, you had your hand in some way. Everybody could see the, the, the view of a farmer planting seeds or seedlings. It was just commonplace in their world. They understood that the farmer was expected to labor difficultly in the field preparing for growth. It wasn't hard for them to see that the farmer plowed and fertilized and he planted and he watered and he weeded and he cultivated. But this is all the farmer can do, right? He, he, he readily admits that the rest of it is out of his control to bring life. He actually plants a seed that must die and it must life come from it. So he knows, the farmer knows, and people would know this in the first century, they would know that what's out of their control is the sun, the wind, the rain, the storms, right? He waits in total dependence on God to bring the harvest. So likewise, Paul came to Corinth, Paul an apostle, to preach the gospel and plant seeds of truth. Paul was in a year and a half early, preached the gospel, people got saved. He left after a year and a half. Apollos comes in, he waters with truth. He waters those things that Paul preached, and they, were, they come back expecting a harvest. And instead, they found very infant growth. And so the Bible is teaching us here that God gets the credit. We plant, we work. We work hard at that. Listen, you've heard a commercial where it says, stay in your lane. Let me tell you this, stay in your row. Keep planting and watering the seeds of truth to the people in your life. Stay in your row. We always want to look over somebody else's row. They didn't show up for work that day. Stay in your row. Keep planting seeds. Keep praying in the spirit that God would save that person you love. Keep watering the truth. And let me add this. Keep believing that God can save. Because he saved you. How many of us have loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ? that you are praying for, that you are begging for, and you look for opportunities to speak truth into their life. You look to water that seed. And your hope is that Jesus will take that truth someday and bring life, don't you? That's exactly Gene and I's hope for, for our own family. I hope that's where you are. So stay in your lane. Keep doing this. Paul's saying, look, this is the work of God. If you're infantile, probably you're not even in the field. Well, it's too hot. I'm over here with my bottle. I don't want to do the work. I don't want to get out in the field. You want to get in the field? You need to have a good meal in the Word of God because it's long and hard and difficult at times. But there's a great reward at the end. God brings in a harvest. He promises to do that. It's interesting. There's, there's several Greek words in verse 6 there. The first two Greek words um, describe the temporary work. Watering and planting. Planting and watering. They're temporary. The third verb talks about a, cont a present cont continual harvest that God has. Oh, we got to trust him in it. Look at 7 and 8. i got to wind this up. So, so then, I love this because that tells me he's going to sum something up, right? So then, neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. But it's God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Well, see, his conclusion, the result of his study is that the sower... Um, and the one who waters and the one who plants the sower here, they, they give the glory to God and they're united. Notice he says they're one. What was the church trying to do? Well, we're of Apollos and we're of Paul. They're trying to divide the church. That's what Satan does. He loves to divide. He goes, no, we're one. You know why? Because we're working for the master. 
We're working for the one who owns the field. We're united together. We're in rows next to each other. We're plowing along. We're planting seeds. We're watering. We're cultivating. We're pulling weeds because we believe Jesus died for us and God loves us and has a plan for our life and is going to bring us into eternity. And they keep working in the field together. That's a church that is not infantile. That's a mature church. A church that says, hey, I'm going to sing in a choir. I'm going to, I'm going to teach children the truth of God's word. I'm going, to, I'm, going to pick up, I'm going to do whatever I can to be a part of what God's doing because he's saving people. And I want to be a part of it. I want to be a worker that he calls into the field. I don't want to sit under the shade with my bottle. I want to get out there and see what God's doing. Verse 8, you can see just unity of the servants together working in the field. They know their roles. They're not, they're not jealous. They're not bitter rivals. They're tied to Christ. And look at the end, it says, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. See, Paul clarifies that all who serve the Lord in his field are not forgotten. Hey, moms who are praying for your children, God knows that. He's not forgotten you. He's going to reward your diligent trust in God that he, he, he can save you. You're putting your hope in him that he'll save your children. Maybe you have an unsafe spouse and your row has been difficult. He knows that. He has not forgotten you. Keep weeding, keep cultivating, keep planting, keep watering, stay in your row, keep working at this. Keep serving the Lord, not because it's dutiful, but it's delightful to serve your Savior who owns the entire field. Keep going. He's going to reward you. There's real influences of, I think, the parable of talents here. God rewards those who serve. You want to nurse a bottle and sit under the shade? You're like the guy who took the talent and buried it in the sand. You want to serve the Lord? Take the talents he's given you and serve him because it's his field, it's his work, it's his glory. He rewards. He rewards. Oh, let me close with verse 9, and we'll jump off next week with this one, but it says, for we are God's fellow workers. We want to talk about not being alone. You think you're alone in this Christian walk? One, you have a church family, but it says you're God's fellow workers. He's joining you in the effort, or what should we say? We're joining him in the effort. We always say this around here. We're going to figure out what God's doing and ask if we can join him instead of telling him what we're doing. See, we're fellow workers with him. And love this, you're God's field. Stay in your row. You're God's field. I got to stay in my row, you stay in your row. And we'll go right through the field together. And at the end, we'll go into eternal life. That's our job. That's what spirit-filled people do. The lost can't do this. They don't even know what row. They're in, they're in another row. It's a really bad one. We hope that God grows faith and gives them faith in it. And notice that we're the building of God. Oh, well, look at this. We're going to look at we're gonna look at the sneak peek. We're going to look at 1 Peter. And he says that he, he takes precious stones and he sets them in the house of Uh, the foundation of Jesus Christ. We're precious to him, chosen and precious, and he's building a household of God. And there's great reward, great reward for following Jesus. Father, we thank you for just a few minutes. It goes by quick, Lord, but a few minutes just to soak in spiritual nourishment, to be those who uh, are ready to set down the bottle, which is basically just selfishness often, and ready to take out the knife and the fork of the word of God and and to to dig deep into the meat, the truth of God's word, to know our God, so we'll trust him in difficult times, Lord. 
and we'll stay in our row and we'll, we'll keep hoeing away and planting and watering and cultivating and repenting and confessing and so forth, Lord, in our row for your glory. So, Lord, I pray for our church that we would be a faithful church that's not looked at as infants. And certainly, Lord, you're always bringing people to faith. You're always bringing people here that need to grow, Lord. But that's why you teach us to disciple. The mature, the ones who love the word of God are the ones who, must, who disciple one another. They pray diligently. They know their Bibles, Lord. So, cause, Lord, we, call, we pray that you would cause a great harvest here in the field here at Riverbend, your field. And you would build a house that worships you. We thank you for this, Lord. Help us, Lord. We need your help in this. We need not to quench the spirit, Lord. We want him to burn bright in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me?